Peace, good people. Peace. Fee, how you feeling? I feel good right now. You feel good? Yeah, how you feel? I am feeling present. Present for sure. And grateful. Gratitude and abundance. Yes. I'm, in, I'm enjoying the room right now. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you all for tuning in to another episode of Soul Affirmations with Felicia and Kariga. With Kariga and Felicia. And who else? The listener. On the Black Love Podcast Network. Hey. Y'all, today is special because we are live in the District of Columbia. And, you know, <laughs> if you follow any of me and Fee's story, um, before Angel Parenthood, uh, you know that D.C. holds a large part of our community, uh, our identity, uh, our cultural regard. Right? Yes. So we are here today on the Black Love Podcast Network. Live from the Kennedy Center at the Reach. Yeah. Real live. <laughs> Overlooking the <laughs> Potomac. Uh, it's a very unique space to be able to tell a story like this in. But I was really determined to do this storytelling here because I truly believe that um, there's a lot of folks in this building today who are reporting for work, who are experiencing grief mm. uh, differently than they were this time last year. And I just don't think that's my business as usual, mm. right? Mm. Grief is a beautifully and complex human experience and emotion. And I wanted to make room for that as a part of our time here at the Kennedy Center at The Reach. Yes. So we get to come here and be with you and Storytell on the Soul Affirmations podcast. Yes. Now, Fee, why else is today special? Oh, man. Today is incredibly special. I think you named just one being back in D.C. always feels incredibly good for me. So much of um, my nurturing has happened here. Adulthood, like, you know, early into I, I can't say late adulthood. Right. But mm -hmm. uh, 20s into my 30s. It's incredibly special. Just this location, um, not only for myself, but like for black people. It's just incredibly rich here in coming here from the west coast i just learned so much mm -hmm. about the black experience mm -hmm. how multivaried it is mm -hmm. complex and beautiful at the same time absolutely and i'm incredibly grateful that i had an opportunity to learn that um mm -hmm. not just through my work here with at howard but through your service work here in dc public schools mm -hmm. and I've had an opportunity to cross so many people being in D.C., mm -hmm. and which makes this incredibly special because there's one very special person that's joining us today. Uh -huh. We are privileged to have Mr. Tony Lewis Jr. on our show today. Mm -hmm. Tony, so good to have you. It's an honor to be here. <laughs> Thank Appreciate you. Appreciate you both. Um, Thank you, Tony. For some of the listeners, you may know him, and if you don't, uh, today you get to experience the heart of a giant mm -hmm. um, as it pertains to service and enduring and remaining hopeful for his people and for his city. 
So we're going to talk a little bit about all those nuances that makes uh, growing up in D.C. so very unique. Mm -hmm. But before we do that, Fee. Yes. Do you have an affirmation for us? For your affirmation. For your affirmation. (laughs) If you turn to page 28 of Kariga's Soul Affirmation text, a toolkit for reflection and manifesting the light within, you will find that it reads, life is not just something happening around me. Life is something happening inside of me. And today I will take time to explore what that means. Wow. Life. Life is not just something happening around me. Life is something happening inside of me. Mm-hmm. Wow. And we're going to explore that, huh? Mm-hmm. I'm going I'm to take a deep breath. Because that exploration can sometimes feel like quite a journey. Mm. Indeed. Indeed. Tony Lewis Jr., thank you so much for joining us today, man. You already know, bro. <laughs> yes, yeah, it's, it's a pleasure to be in space with you, to embrace you, to look you in the eye. I was uh, joking with Tony before that our names are often in so many rooms together, although we're not. <laughs> yeah. Right? Um, but any time to be able to spend time with my brother is a blessing. Uh, Tony, if you will, uh, tell a little people about yourself, and then we'll get into some of the connectedness and the belongingness of this work. Okay. Yeah, so um, I guess for the past 22 years, uh, I've stood at the intersection of poverty, mass incarceration, and gun violence here in D.C., trying to help people navigate through those spaces to a place of stabilization and uh, prosperity. Activist, author, advocate, champion for children with incarcerated parents, criminal justice reformer, reentry expert, um, some of the titles that I think... um, people have uh, given me but I just always see myself as a um a servant leader I guess you know just trying to help people find their way you know the way that people help me do the same thing so mm-hmm. again thank you guys man you know how special um you are to me uh how much I appreciate you both and what you do what you represent what you model you know what mm-hmm. I'm saying so yeah I'm happy to be here thank you much thank you, man Tanya. um I also just want to say on behalf of uh on my Uber ride over here today, mm-hmm. I experienced something that was so familiar, but it felt different because I haven't heard it in a long time. On my Uber ride over today, my driver expressed to me that she had two sons, 16 and 17, both incarcerated. Mm. The 16-year-old is facing upward of 30 years. Hmm. The 17-year-old has court today. They threw out a gun charge. So she was hopeful about that. Mm -hmm. And I I go there so immediately because when um, Tony's talked about uh, being in the intersection of poverty, gun violence, uh, reentry expert, uh, servant leader, I know the stories and the families He's holding space for Mm. when we talk about gun violence interruption, that work, there are proven methods that are similar no matter the city, but DC has its own very special pedigree. It's so different from other cities. Mm -hmm. We live in Oakland, Mm -hmm. right? I know what the town is capable of, but I have never seen so many young folks subjected to violence as I have in DC. Mm. 
mm-hmm. uh, subjected to uh, decisions and or outcomes that impact their freedom long term. Mm. The fact that she's talking to me about a 16 year old facing 30 plus years. He doesn't know how to see that far. The, the, the furthest he can see is 16 right now. Mm-hmm. So I want to name that I thank you for serving um, your home. I don't have to thank you for that. But there are people who still mean very much to me here. There is family for me still here. And I thank you for being in that intersection. Mm-hmm. Yeah. My, man. <clears throat> My man, you already know. Yes, sir. So um, I guess in, in, in brief, Tony's work uh, specifically includes uh, a reentry expert. Uh, and I think that's a unique term. We talk about mass incarceration, the people who have been afforded opportunities to be present in this work, right? Mm-hmm. And But there's also a very specific part of Tony Lewis Jr.'s life that in addition to representing so many families, uh, in addition to supporting so many people in our community as they experience their reentry, their reintegration back into their community. I want to ask a little bit about that juxtaposition of that work of representing families and reentry and your very own story surrounding mass incarceration. And that's just unique to me. I mean, yes, you know what they need, but you also have a very, very specific need as well. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I think my work in reentry, right, helping men and women when they return, you know, rather it's around, you know, just general stabilization, uh, addressing treatment issues, housing, employment. Uh, but the main thing, the main pillar for me is always looking at that person in terms from a family reunification standpoint mm. um helping them to be their best selves so that they can um raise and empower their children uh as as a child of an incarcerated parent you know my father went to prison when i was nine i'm 42 so that was 33 years ago approaching 34 years uh and and really longing for that uh, uh day to be reunified with my father, right? Um, And so that definitely impacts my work and Mm. my commitment to uh, just not that individual that is returning, but to his or her family. Wow. Uh, And how critical that is from a community lens that we do that, that that we see people in that way, Mm -hmm. right? We talk about 2.3 million people, uh, you know, any given day being incarcerated in, in our country. And this issue of mass incarceration is not just about those people. Those people belong to people. Uh, and, um, you know, I've, I've, I've tried to elevate that perspective about this American issue <laughs> that, yeah. that I, in my opinion, has uh, destabilized communities like mine more than anything because mm-hmm. it's tied to everything else. Mm-hmm. It's tied to that 16-year-old uh, facing 30 years. It's tied to low test scores in, in, in our schools. It's tied to unemployment. Um, it's tied to mental health. And so, um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and I know that. That's why, again, uh, I think the solutions to a lot of these issues in the communities like the one I come from is to help those people uh, reintegrate properly, foster yeah. a sense of inclusion, try to develop a culture of redemption, because uh, we have seen uh, some incredible success. And so many of those people have, 
have actually, um, you know, returned and helped to save lives, yep. change lives. Right. Yep. That potential is locked away in many of our American prisons. And I don't want people to ever forget that. Yeah. It's like they have a way of freezing our assets. Mm. Right. Certain folks who have the capability, the power, the knowledge, the institutional memory of what their community used to be. They freeze our assets and they tell us to carry on with business as usual. Mm. And it makes it very challenging in that way. I want I want to take a deep breath and process so much of the game you just put out on the table. Yes. Right? Um, the facts, the data, the lived experience. But I, I want to come to a point of, you said, uh, it was around um, family reunification. Mm-hmm. And you said that... Um, would you say 2.3 million people? Yeah. 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 That's how much, that's our incarceration? Correct. One, I was underinformed of that, that number, right, statistically. But when you brought into the conversation that they belong to people, measure of belongingness was so important and so humanizing for us to make room for. Mm-hmm. Uh, they sometimes want to disappear us when they incarcerate us. Mm-hmm. Nobody remembers. Um, mm-hmm. Nobody cares. Mm-hmm. But we know that that's not true. And also what struck me, this, I mean, you just said it, but me processing it again, I'm incredibly moved by how you have framed for us. It's not just about the person that is locked up. Correct. It involves so many other people. Mm -hmm. And that belongingness is such an essential, it's a basic human need, right? And when you have belongingness in your life, it impacts your decisions and the things that you do, whether or not you believe that you can do something, whether or not you expect to succeed at something. So actually, it is this sense of belonging, having these, these men and women that are mass incarcerated connected with their communities and their families, in fact, could do so much more for them. And I know that we know this, but I'm talking about even like theoretically, like what theory says about what we need as a human being. Correct. Yep. You know what I mean? Correct. Yep. Yep. Even in the the theory knows it. We know it. Human beings know it. Children know it. Come on. And our system isn't set up to, to hold on to that as much as possible, right? Just if people had to go to prison. Uh, but like, for instance, in my situation, well, my father, my father's first 13 years of his incarceration, he was in Lompoc, California, right? I'm mm. from, we from Washington, D.C. Right. He was 3,000 miles away um, for from when I was nine to 22, right? So you think about, and I, I went out there like three times in that, in that span, but most, 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 uh, Families where I'm from would never, the kid would have never went out there, right? Yep. And the, the yep. idea that somebody, that, that's even a possibility. You know what I mean? And even, so he, he my father's a federal uh, inmate. And in D.C., we don't even have a local prison anymore anyway. So everybody goes in the feds. But even in states, prisons aren't around the corner, right? Right. But at yep. least we also know that, that you know, um, visiting mm-hmm. uh, is, is, is like the most essential way to keep familial bonds tight. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so if you can't visit, you know, uh, yeah. <laughs> you, you prison has a way of eroding the most sacred bonds and parental um, sibling bonds, all that. I've seen yes. it. Yes. Yeah. And, and it's deep. S- subsequently, it, it erodes like what it is that you believe that you can do. I mean, your actual cognitive processing and the decisions that you would make for yourself, for your family, like that, it impacts all of that. Mm-hmm. How disgusting of a system this is. Yeah. Impacts it greatly. Yeah, it's um, deep. Fee called me this morning because I had already come into, um, the Kennedy Center for Performing Arts. Let's say the whole thing. <laughs> I had taken off early this morning to get a head start on today's um, creative work. She called me and she said that our 19-month-old daughter woke up and said, where's daddy? One, that's a like a new sentence phrase, okay? Where's daddy? She wants to know where. But Fee also told me she was emotional for the children who may have to ask that question and there is no answer Mm -hmm. that is suitable Mm -hmm. or for the children who have that question internally and don't say it out loud Mm -hmm. because nobody can give them an answer that satisfies them. Mm. So I am drawn to this moment uh, to hold space for all the children of incarcerated loved ones. All the children who are waking up wanting to know where their parents are. No one has a specific answer that can remedy their desire for connection. And as I think about all those children, Tony Lewis Jr., if I have permission, um, I want to think of you. Now, I know I have a grown man sitting in front of me But when you told me that story of your father being incarcerated when you were nine for the first 13 years, he was in California. Um, And now we are up to 30, 33, almost 34 years. I want to hold space for all of you. The version of you that was once a child, the version of you that is now a man. Having to resolve this same question, although you know they make it so hard for that. And I I guess essentially, when you come up how I came up, where you might lose peers, uh, I went from losing peers to losing students, mm-hmm. right? And so I guess my scale, how I scaled what grief is, I would try to make up in my mind um, like why I don't have permission or why I don't have time to get too hung up mm. on another loss today. Yeah. Uh, I experienced a loss yesterday or I experienced a loss of somebody who was incredibly close to me. And next week I experienced a loss of somebody that I knew, but we weren't as close. So I may not call in from work that day. I might keep things going. At a time I started to like rationalize or put a hierarchy around how much sadness I deserve to feel or how much I could afford to feel. Mm. But in my understanding of grief being the experience of love, 
it has opened my heart's capacity to see it all as love. It has opened my heart's capacity to see it all as grief. And today I have capacity to acknowledge, make room for, and stop what we're doing if we must to acknowledge the grief of those around us who aren't just experiencing the um, a double transition of a child or a family member passing away or a childhood friend passing away. Mm-hmm. But I'm also holding space for folks whose lives look incredibly different than the one they imagined for themselves or even planned for themselves. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And if I am correct in hearing you, but I don't want to project. Tony, this to me, this sounds like grief. I, it's absolutely. It's grief. Mm-hmm. It's been grief for the last, you know, since April 15th, 1989. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I was very, I was always clear, uh, you know, my dad's case um, was the biggest case in the history of our city before or since. And so it wasn't, it was impossible to sort of shield me from where he was. Mm-hmm. But the question nobody wanted to answer was when was he coming home? Because mm-hmm. the answer to that, you know, once they got sentenced was never. You know, and, and when they went to jail, my father didn't go to prison prior to his, you know, right. going, right? So it's not like I grew up with him going in and out of jail. That wasn't right. the situation. Uh, I had uncles that we would go visit in prison. So I had grew up going to visit people in, the pr- in prison, but just not him. Um, but, you know, he went, they were at DC jail initially, and then they put, uh, getting preferential treatment there. So they moved them uh, to Quantico Marine Base, which is like yeah. <laughs> 25 minutes from here. And we fly them by military helicopter to and fro. But when you went to visit at, at Quantico, it's no, it's not a jail, right? They had like this, this like cell block out in the field, I guess for like when Marines like do yeah. something, whatever. But mm. you, when you went to visit, you had to visit at the cell, right? So, um, Yes, I'm nine, ten years old going wow. up to the cell to visit my father, you know. And I remember when he got sentenced, when he got life without parole, seeing him on the other side of the bars, like crying, you know, trying to keep his tears back. Yeah. And telling me, you know, uh, Slug, my nickname, right? Everybody called me Slug. <laughs> like, Slug, you got to be strong. You know what I'm saying? While him trying to be strong. And I watch, I never seen him cry. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Like, man. Um, but the back, the the backdrop to that, though, from, again, April 15th, 1989, my mother never was the same. And so, uh, you know, watching her her break down, uh, you know, her understanding the full complexity and the gravity of what we were going through was hitting her more than anybody. Um, and then we got carjacked, like, maybe like a year after he went to jail, mm. her and I. And I was like, when that event happened, just speaking to grief, like, that... I never got her back the same. Like she never was the same after the carjacking. So mm. uh, it went from, you know, just like paranoia. His lifestyle required paranoia, right? Mm-hmm. Given, you know, mm-hmm. all that was happening back then. But um, her not seeing me as myself, her not uh, eating, um, you know, eventually being hospitalized multiple times as a teenager. Um, so like, like that that event with him going to prison kind of took both of my parents away in a yep. way that I had them prior. Yep. And up until right now, you know what I mean? They're both in that same situation, mm-hmm. you know? Uh, and then I have a wife and children that um, I have to sort of navigate and 
want, wanting them to have a relationship with them, but you know, given the state, the status of where they are, it's very difficult. It's easy with my dad. That sounds crazy. He's incarcerated. But it's easy to have a relationship for them to have a relationship with him than my mother. But my mother, you know, her her schizophrenia makes her violent. You know, it's there's a lot that comes along with that. Yeah. I've, I grew up. I've been my whole life since he went to prison. It's been like that. Um, so I've been grieving in that way with my mm. parents, you know, my parents, cause my parents are so doting and uh, I'm the only child. Right. So it's like, it was just us, me oh, and them, man. you know what I mean? And so yeah. that event took them from me, you know? Um, mm. yeah. So that's continued to be, uh, my reality. Uh, and so that to me, I classify that, uh, absolutely as grief. Not, you know, my life has been filled with losing so many of my peers to gun violence, family members to gun violence. Um, Mm-hmm. And that hasn't stopped. Mm-hmm. You know, I lost my first friend when I was 10 mm-hmm. to gun violence. My uncle got killed when I was 12. And I had homies just die continuously. And even, had, even now, at 42, um, in August, five of my homies got shot. Two of them died. One my age, the other one 53. A guy I grew up under, you know. Um, thank God the other three survived. But And, and you mentioned your students. Bro, like the work I do, I work with, you know, these, I don't like use these labels like at risk, but like I work with people that are in the mix. Yep. Yeah. Placed my, at risk. My, yeah. my, 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 my students, my clients, my, they die. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Or they go to prison. That's the yeah. nature of the work I do. So, um, yeah, I, it's been, I've been grieving a long time. Mm-hmm. Academic, and, can you, um, can you, it, I don't mean that in anybody else's name. From, from the academy I don't rock um, Say that. what I'm saying is as an academic you said something oh, I learned man. this terminology from Felicia I learned this terminology from Felicia when I was in DC public schools and we would always hear about at risk youth oh, at man, risk youth at risk youth right at risk Felicia what did you learn from the academy that these students are not at risk it's circumstance that creates the risk they are placed at risk and when we say placed at risk mm-hmm. It begs of us to ask the investigative question of who is placing them at risk. Because if we don't say place, then there's no ownership on the risk. Come on. But the risk is design. It is. The risk is. And it can be changed. I get up every morning trying to change it. Mm. Like for real, I know it ain't all on me, but that's facts. And I know that's why I sound like use that term because it's not. I'm them. Right. So it's, it's like. And and so much of in particularly in the gun violence space and, and even in the reentry space. It, it has to be an economic plan. Like this stuff is, like you said, it's in, it, you're placed at risk in terms of where you are. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, I, like I, my book, Slug, A Boy's Life in the Age of Mass Incarceration, I'm grateful that it's been able to be used in, in different schools, right? Mm-hmm. Last month I spoke at Sidwell Friends, which is a school <laughs> um, that president's children go to. Mm-hmm. And I spoke at Blue Senior High School, which is a DC public school in, in Ward 8 in Southeast Washington. Um, within like two weeks of each other, right? Mm-hmm. I was blown away and floored by the questions at Baloo. Not to say that the CEO kids didn't ask great questions, right? Yeah. But my point of people, people would, people see those children differently. Mm. Yep. And they're not. Yep. Yep. You hear mm-hmm. me? Like they're not, right? They're and, not. And, 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 and I'm not saying that to make my point. I'm saying that because that's the truth. That's the, the, we, we, we will put tags and labels on the babies at Baloo. Yep. Like as if something is they're subpar or something is wrong yep. with them. Yep. Right. But again, there's n- in 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 communities like the kids, where the kids from, they go to blue come from, 
what's so crazy to me is like they are held accountable. Mm-hmm. Right? They're, mm-hmm. they're, they're held to account uh, uh, far beyond a lot of times what, what was necessary, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. The people that, to your point, that create the conditions in which they uh, have to grow up in, there's no accountability there. No. Wow. My father got life without parole for a nonviolent offense, right? Mm. Um, and and I'm not one to say that my dad was, uh, my dad is not a political prisoner. He's not innocent, right? But there's no way uh, a man who had never been to prison that did not kill anybody, didn't, you know, whatever the case. And I don't even like to do that because I believe in grace and redemption for all. Right? Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. We don't try to otherwise. Right? Uh-huh. Exactly. With that being said, to have your entire life taken from you, mm-hmm. right? But when, when we talk, when we hear about, my dad went again, again went to jail in the late 80s. When we talk about uh, from Ronald Reagan and, and the Contras, and we now the data is there, the proof is there of how cocaine got into all the majors. We know that now. We know it. Right? We know it Those now. people, it's no account, no, there's no accountability on the part of the people responsible for that. To bring it full circle, what I'm saying is that like that played, that that what happened then has so much impact on what we see in community now and again the people the victims continue to be held to account and the people that have a shared responsibility or more responsibility and so much that happens in our communities nothing happens Mm. that seems seems to be the American way Mm. I'm floored in I don't think I've been this emotional on in in any of my spaces, um, I I deeply know how I was impacted by the passing of my brother. I deeply know how I was impacted of the double transition of Kamayu. With Kamayu, the challenge was there was nobody I can look to to hold responsible. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. So it forced me to have a different process of reconciliation within myself. Mm. And I could do that internal work by myself mm-hmm. every day. Mm-hmm. I can do that work with you, mm-hmm. with our therapist. The thing that's charging my emotion and I'm realizing, oh, this was emotion all along. So I get angry when I hear these uh, types of stories. Mm-hmm. And it's always made me angry, um, which is probably why I Spent 14 years in America's public schools, which is probably why I was, you know, an organizer and, and, and activating what I can in spaces. But I always thought I was just mad about it. Mm. Today's the first day I realized I'm actually sad about it. Mm. I've developed long enough and matured long enough that my only response is not fuck the system. But I learned to bang on a system that was banging on us. So I never knew that my emotions were really connected. Mm. I thought it was my philosophy or my moral compass around what is right, what is truly right, what is truly just and what is unjust. Today I recognize, oh, as an adult, I was sad. I was sad when I felt like there was nothing we could do about it. Um, And when you so clearly articulated, Tony, when you say um, we have I know the systems that are designed to hold our babies, babies accountable. I just talked to you all about 
a mother driving Uber who has a 16 and a 17 year old son facing those types of years. So I've seen, I know what it's like for systems, neighborhoods, um, government agencies, schools to hold children accountable, 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 accountable. And to think that we have the data, like you say, the awareness, we know how the cocaine got there, we know it. <laughs> and there's this sudden uh, circumstantial amnesia that allows us not, one, there's no accountability, but two, there is no urgency mm. around right-sizing any of this. And I needed to hear your human voice to remember that I am feeling all of this. Hmm. it's not my politic was never based on information alone it was based on human lives that's what i was riding for that's what i was in them schools for it wasn't a it wasn't a side i wanted to see win it was humanity that i thought deserved this type of grace this type of love this type of compassion and i want to just also um Revisit really quickly how amazing it is, I think you are, Tony, for your work in community, in proximity to government agencies, um, in your home, as a father, as a husband, uh, as a son of two parents who have never been the same since April 15th, 1989. Uh, I think you're remarkable. Um, I feel privileged to one, be able to call you and two, be able to call you a friend, a brother. Because there's also an institution that never wanted you to be. Right. So I am standing in proximity to a miracle. Mm -hmm. Um, there was an institution, a plan um, since April 15th, 1989 and before that for you not to be, period, yeah. nor be who you are today. Yeah. So I, I, I just have to, in, the, um, in alignment with my faith, and, and now I can really understand why it's so hard for some people to have faith. Oh, absolutely. Right. You can choose that. But- there's this there's this thing about me that will give thanks whenever I can. Mm. It saves my mind. Mm. It saves my fight. It saves my fire. So I give thanks for you. Mm. As much as the very existence of you challenges all my human emotions, I give thanks for you, bro. I appreciate you, bro. And I can I, at you, <laughs> I can say too how my heart is just swelling, swelling for your will. You know, um yes. again, like I feel like every time we have these conversations around grief, I can't but help to try and investigate it from a cognitive standpoint, right? And how we make choice behaviors based on our lived experiences. And you very beautifully articulated um, two different types of grief. You talk, I mean, several different types, right? But what I 
observed listening to you is that there is grief that is final. And then there is grief that you still have to experience knowing that someone is actually physically still present here and how to navigate that. Mm -hmm. And the layers of that type of grief, Tony, but still having this value to remain connected to them through your work is incredible. Like I am, my heart really just moves at the choice to pursue this work, to understand the significance of it. This is my first time ever hearing about family reunification and just even like the significance of re-entry and what that entails. I am so incredibly grateful. And that's what's wild, right? That something like this, this type of grief that has occurred over a span of almost 34 years, that somehow you can have a reframe in the entire experience and find gratitude. I actually can't even stand that. That that was the work that I had to work at the most. So to be able to be here and just honor your story and the work that you're doing, I can't help but say thank you again. Really? Thank you. Gratitude's aids in my sustainability. Mm. When the shit that you experience really makes you want to explode, lose it all, yeah. as we call it crashing, right? Fact. I could crash right now. Yeah. My gratitude helps sustain my endurance and or will, um, the constant reframe. Mm-hmm. is is a work of wonder um you know what is the um what? our, our you know, so yeah so so <laughs> no nah, but according um to the black podcast awards soul affirmation is the best black religion and spirituality podcast and this was i when i got this i laughed right not I didn't laugh at the award. I laughed at the the domain it was put in mm-hmm. um, because my work in spirituality and or the definition or confines of religion has never been based on the institution. Um, I'm I articulate why I have my faith the way I do because I can pinpoint on map and coordinates moments that it could have been the end for me. Mm. and i'm still here Mm -hmm. so no one can erase that from me that is the premise of my faith that is the premise of my gratitude that is why i say thank you that is why i pray that is why i show up but i'll also say talking to you today tony has done for me wonders in terms of my faith because it's like love it's never because of it's in spite of Mm-hmm. right and because if i love you because of something you do what happens if that something changes yeah right i need to love you in spite of uh the things that are imperfect so right now my my faith is in spite of my anger at a system who has caused this to you who has caused this to us i think about what it means for a child to have to go to quantico Mm-hmm. A space that we can't even we can't even go, right? 100%. You can't go, 100%. and if you're driving by, you can't see. Yeah. I've driven by Quantico numbers of times. Yeah. It's elusive. It's just like this thing that does or doesn't exist. Yeah. And they relocate and disappear your parent there, 
and you have to go see them there now. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it does for me wonders in terms of like grounding me again. And it sounds crazy, but it's either that or I crash. The way the way this makes me feel, the way this grief, like this grief that has responsible parties, mm. that grief sets me on fire mm -hmm. differently. Mm -hmm. So I love you and I see you. You teach me. Your work evolves my heart, bro. I mean this. Mm -hmm. Your ability to navigate and I mean, a lot of people know you and know your story as it pertains to your father and that being the largest case, right? But when you spoke of your mother, a, a kind of a lesser known part of your life, you feel what I'm saying? Yeah. Uh, I want to hold space for that mm -hmm. and for the children and for the people who are half parents and similar. Um, yes presentations you know yeah man. um you make this you make this work around holding space for grief so much more inclusive mm -hmm. and though challenging so much more beautiful because it is more inclusive to me the soul affirmations podcast just grew in its beauty because we're learning how to hold space in the grief experience for our people mm -hmm. um and surely people from all racial presentations have parents that are incarcerated mm -hmm. but we know what the mass incarceration system is built on right mm -hmm. it is built on the backs and the stories and the lives of black families yeah mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and when i think um you know also like i've been particularly like in the book right? I'm, I'm super transparent about my mother's situation, right? And what that was like. It's just it's about my life, right? It's about my day to day. Mm -hmm. Um but you know, you know, what happens is that like people they're attracted to the whole idea, um, the trope about the the drug dealer, yeah. you know, this people hold on to that. And even in the conversations about what we went have been through as father and son during incarceration, people seem to be more focused on how much money they made or what kind of cars we had, right? It's just amazing to me sometimes. Um, but there are, and as mental health, um, you know, has become more centered, mm -hmm. uh, you know, uh, in terms of what we talk about in America, uh, probably more so than it ever was before, but like you growing up and your mother's schizophrenic, your mother going back and forth to the, uh, mental health hospital, right. Um, and going to visit her there on the ward. And it's like. You could did the, how cold it was, and how like the orderlies and the nurses, and nobody had like really regard for the patients and you as a visitor and navigating that. And you know, she down the hall, you know, you just walk and find your person. You know, uh, people are going through different um, manic episodes just mm -hmm. out on the ward, and you 14, 15, whatever, 16. All the times I went, and it was like, you know, my dad going to visit him in prison, but he my dad, right? I feel like he going to be, he okay. This is my mother, right? You know, he, she out here, she's with everybody like this. And, you know, that whole thing. And it was, you know, a big thing for me, even doing the carjacking, like I said, I was 10. And and I always felt like I should have done something. You mm. know what I mean? I'm 10, though. What am I? 
What I'm gonna do? Jump and put the gun to me. Tell me get out the car. She pulled me out the car, but he jumped. She was pumping the gas. He jumped and put the gun on me and like get out the car, whatever you know. And my mother pulled me out the car, but in my mind, I, I, for a long time, I was like, man, I should have did something about that. And mm-hmm. ain't nobody gonna take nothing else from us. Or ain't nobody gonna hurt her. That mm-hmm. was my, I, you know, I pledged allegiance to that. Um, my innocence. Though I'm ten years old, and I'm thinking about how what I should have did, right? Mm-hmm. When I go on this psych ward. And see my mother. And all I could think about is none of these people better not do nothing to my mother. And I'm trying to look at them in a certain way to make sure that they know like they wouldn't know. And they're going through what they're going through. But I'm just saying in my young yep. mind yep. what my thought was. And even, you know, uh, as I grew up, you know, it ain't take long for now in my community, right? That was sort of like how we lived anyway. And so it was like, yeah, I will do something to somebody if they hurt my mother, you know? Yeah. Uh all of that kind of stuff I had to deal with mm-hmm. and figure out, um, you know, while surviving, right? While trying to maintain a relationship with my dad, you know, which I thank God for uh, us being able to withstand yeah. uh, this. And, you know, them conversations on that, on that phone or those letters, like, really helped us stay connected because mm-hmm. that's not um, what happens. I've seen so many people in in that didn't even experience incarceration for that the length of time that we have Mm -hmm. um that those bonds were like forever broken Mm. yeah Yeah, and i I think we start talking about really talk about what impacts incarceration has had on the black family yes it's much deeper than what people either understand or are willing to admit yeah Mm -hmm. understand or care to understand yeah Yeah. even us going through it the one of the main conundrums around the mass incarceration system and how it impacts folks that you don't even that you don't even think about in the equation. I remember learning about the gunman that shot and killed my brother. And one of the early things we learned about him um, was that his father was incarcerated um, for the same thing. Mm-hmm. And my first mind was, there's a rhyme I say, uh, man, we curse the shooter's name and the womb from which he came. For our pain, may you never breathe again, eternal flames. This pain here is life-changing. It can make your faith be compromised. I promise we're going to take care of your daughter. May her blessings be multiplied by every tear that she cries. I remember that pain. I didn't want nothing to do with them. I didn't care what happened to them. I didn't think they deserved to occupy the same space, time, air, or breath that we did. Mm-hmm. And in that same day, I remembered my students hmm. who had fathers who were incarcerated for doing the same thing and the love that I was able to show them because I believed they deserved it. Yeah. That conundrum still racks my brain. That conundrum still racks my brain. But because I know that I don't have the final answer and or destination, I'm willing to learn about grace and empathy for anybody who I may not see as deserving. Right. Uh, Because if they're in my blind spot of grace, it could be my blind spot, not a fact that they don't deserve it. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. And. Hmm. And it's not a question on whether or not I thought your father deserved it or not. I'm just saying that every time I hear stories that humanize members of our community that's been invisibilized and thrown away, it expands my heart 
to be filled with more love because yeah. I'll need it yeah. because the system makes me angry. The way we treat each other makes me angry. The way we harm each other makes me angry. Oh. The way children have questions that no adult can answer makes me angry. And I realize, God damn, there's a whole lot of things that make me angry. That's <laughs> not going to make me live any longer. Yeah. Right. All the anger inside my body is not going to sustain my life. So I look for rooms and conversations like this mm. where I can grow in love. Mm. Yeah, bro. I mean, we, we, we all, we're human beings, man. Like, we're supposed to feel, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I, I just think about how much though, um, and what you just said so beautifully really had me thinking about like, you know, so, so my pain, my trauma, my grief, um, has allowed me to go in rooms, go in prisons, to go in community, go in alleys, go in buildings and connect with people that nobody else can. Yeah. yeah. Right? Mm. And that work has been um, therapeutic for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's given me purpose. It's mm-hmm. given me strength. Um, it's given me clarity. Yeah. About... Um, so much uh and it's it's also challenged me in uh incredible ways uh ways where you know whether it's if i if i work within a reentry program uh and and dudes that i may have grown up with or in, in proximity to and 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 my friends and their friends had issues yeah or we had issues you shot at me, you kill one of my homies, you come home, you in my program. You shot at me, you in my classroom now, though. Hmm. Am I really about what I say I'm about? Right? Like, I've been challenged on that level, right? Um, I've been challenged on the level of, you know, something happened to somebody you love and that's a, that's, a, that's a big piece in our community and a lot of all, any community really uh, going back in time that this is going to be retribution for an act of uh, that takes somebody from us right and you know we kind of romanticizing that taking somebody from their side going to make us feel better mm. um, and almost like that's customary that has to happen mm-hmm. or else I ain't love that person yep. <laughs> tell the whole story and so <laughs> You wrestling with that. You wrestling with losing the person, but now you wrestling with should you harm somebody else? You know, and this work, my 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 um, maturation in the work, my growth in the work, while growing in the work, I've been faced with these kind of things. Um, I didn't have a brother. My little cousin Alan was like my little brother, right? And he died in 08. And when he died, I had been on a BT that had this series called American Gangster. Mm-hmm. And the, my dad's partner, Ravel Edmond, was the focus. He was the subject of uh, an episode in the first season, which was in uh, 2007. Mm-hmm. In 2008, my dad's uh, mentor, our, our big homie from our block, Cornell Jones, was um, the subject in t- 2008. Uh, I'm, I'm on both of them, but like the date that, you know, that my, my platform started to rise. You know, I was on TV. That was crazy to people, right? It was crazy mm-hmm. to me for something positive. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but Alan died right after we filmed. He was out there when we were doing the film, and that's why I'm referencing this. 
he was the closest thing to me. And I all like growing up, I'm his big, I'm his slug, I'm his big cousin. That's my little cousin. Ain't nobody gonna do nothing to him. You know what I'm saying? And he used to be, you know, around, but not necessarily in the mix. But he, you know, they came through, they spent our way. He got hit. He died, right? And my whole world shook. I, you know, um, I, I just, I was like at a loss because I felt like it was like, you know, I don't believe God is cynical, right? But I was like, hey, man, like, what you on? Like, because yeah. I, I, I was turning the corner all the way in terms of me mm-hmm. coming into my, my own mm-hmm. um, as a professional. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, wasn't, wasn't like coming out of that space of like, man, is this really happening? Am I really going to make it? Am I really going to not die or not go to jail? Am I going to mm-hmm. like, is this a career? Like, I'm, what am I doing? I'm doing this. Mm-hmm. And then they, he died. And it took everything in me not to to crash out. And it was like speculation about who and what direction that might have come from. Mm -hmm. And I was like in a a posture, in a mindset of like, well, whoever might be responsible, that's where we going. I I felt that was deep Start there. That's it. We'll figure it out. You know what I mean? But the deepest moment came for me when I heard that one of the alleged people that might have been responsible was somebody that I mentored. And I, I, I never forget, like, I was sitting on my front and, and, and the dude told me, I'm like, what? And I was just puzzled. Like, on so many, like, I mentored this young, not in, in knowing, knowing also, right, we already knew no matter who had done it, he wasn't the target yep. regardless, right? Simple as that. So I knew this, but the idea that somebody that I poured so much into, mm. mm-hmm. right, mm-hmm. might be responsible for this. And then, but then the question becomes, well, what do I do with that? I love him. I don't love him as much as I love my little cousin, but I love this mm-hmm. kid. I love him. I had him since he was like 10, 11. Like, what do I do with that? And, and at Allen's funeral, oh, one of our, one of our old timers hugged me. Like, I don't know why he just hugged me tight and was like nah like no and it, you know he is like he he must have just it probably was just on me he probably felt he knew we come mm-hmm. under the same thing but he was like nah you didn't come too far you gotta let that go and that 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 moment for me was again the most challenging moment but it it was something it's like i got through that I was able to like, you know, have some resolve. I was able to give it to God as they say, right? Hmm. And and being very clear that I could have went on a blood bad, but that wasn't gonna bring Allen back. It wasn't. Mm. And then in the you know, that was 14 years ago. Um, and I think about all that has happened in that 14 years, right? Like I, what what wouldn't have happened had I, you know, um I understand you know, I know that yeah. in every way. Mm. Um, yeah, whoever whoever we think did it, that's where we started. Because somebody gonna see and know that we somebody not, gotta feel yeah. how we feel, and it's, and it's and and you know, I'm not gonna try us again. Yeah, because you're gonna realize it's too expensive. And for us, given my um, my family's role in my community, uh. And that's nothing like my my dad, you know, is who he is. But my 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 maternal side is really the, you know, my <laughs> they they taught him what he knew. 
my mm-hmm. mother's brothers, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And, and my little cousin, Alan, that's my uncle Boo, who God rest his soul, he passed on, you know, now too. But that Alan was his son. So it was just, you. it's like, you know who we are, right? It was like one of them things. It was mm-hmm. ego. It was just everything. And I felt like I, I had to lead too um, in that way, right? Uh, and again, I was out here being the guy who's asking other people not to do what I want to do. Right, that, that that was the thing. Like, are you who you say you are? And and Ooh. if I, and if I broke, then then I would never be able to bring peace to nobody else's community. I would have, I would have never learned who I was. And the work. That's what I mean by the work. That's how the work really saved my life in more ways than one. But that situation, the work, I I would have been throwing all my work away. And even if I quote unquote like got away with it or sent the move and then like, you know, every way we know how to make mm-hmm. things happen and, and not kind of point back whatever, I I wouldn't have been able to go in to do anything else to help my people in any way. And I and that and that, that was the thing that anchored me um to to do what was right. You know what yeah. I'm saying? And continue to do what's right and be able to help people see their way through similar situations um no matter how uh traumatic no matter how much pain like people you know and i, I try to share that like i've been there mm-hmm. and i don't like to say that because like we all feel the same about everybody but i'm like i've been there i've been right where you are i know i know what you feel i really do mm-hmm. and if i'm saying that to somebody they can see in my eye they can feel yeah. that i do i've been there but it's like what do you risk what do you throw away in the midst of feeling like, and that you're never gonna get to what you really want, which is that person coming back. It don't happen that way. You know, one thing that hasn't happened on the show, I don't know if they heard a dap like this one. Uh-uh. <laughs> Not real talk, because I want them to hear what that what that sounds like physically when oh, we touch. Mm-hmm. You dig what I'm saying? I um I thank you for your for your work, for your open heart, mm-hmm. um, for the power that is uh evolving through you uh what you have done today for us in the in our understanding in our in our quest for understanding around grief around love and all the nuances that it presents um tony lewis jr i just want to thank you for opening in all the dimensions that you have right and um for our listeners, again, will you tell us the name of your book? Yes, uh, Slug. That's S L U G G. It's my nickname. Mm-hmm. Slug: A Boy's Life in the Age of Mass Incarceration. Slug: A Boy's Life in the Age of Mass Incarceration. Make sure y'all check out that literature and put it in the hand of a young person um, or the adults who you think need better understanding mm-hmm. on how to serve young people in those similar experiences. Mm-hmm. Um, Felicia began the episode with a conversation uh, inquiry from page 28 an affirmation that reads life is not something just happening around me life is something happening inside of me and today i will take time to explore what that means tony lewis jr thank you for taking time to explore what that means with us thank you for your passageways and pathways that you brought us into to help us understand Mm -hmm. felicia thank you so much for um, your heart and your framing and and giving us the listeners tony and myself the reminder that none of us are at risk and none of our young people are at risk they are placed at risk mm-hmm. and we must begin to ask the investigative question 
on who is placing us in this risk. Mm-hmm. And until we cross paths again, from our family to yours, man, may we all love more abundantly. A special thank you to our executive producers, Cody and Tommy Oliver, our producer, Crystal Hill, and the wonderful team here at The Reach at the Kennedy Center for inviting us in to tell these very necessary and beautiful stories, uh, ones that you can only get on this side of the river. Mm. Peace.